Welcome to Short Story Discussions, podcast by Short Story Book Club for people who love short stories. Get the best short stories delivered to your door each month when you subscribe at shortstorybookclub.com. And now, here's our show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Short Story Discussions, the podcast by Short Story Book Club. Today we have another special guest. Her name is Dima Alziat. She was born in Damascus, Syria, grew up in San Jose, California, and now lives in the UK. And the story that um, she has written is titled Alligator and uh, it is the title story of a collection of uh, short stories of her newly released book that came out uh, in May of 2020. Now usually we would spend some time chatting about maybe lots of different stories from a collection but today I've asked Dima if it was all right if we just chatted for a moment about one story in particular, and that is the um, the title story, Alligator. I think that this story, you know, and, and Dima will tell you more about the story in her, in her own words. This story is really um, timely uh, because. You know, you, you may be listening to the, this recording sometime in the future, but currently, in June of 2020, around the country, around the world really, we are experiencing a series of protests and riots, demonstrations, uh, that are resulting from the untimely death of George Floyd. So to give a little context and background for that, George Floyd, we have this uh, video that came out on YouTube of uh, a police officer pulling, no, not pulling over, but a police officer uh, coming to arrest George Floyd. And the part that I saw in the YouTube video, Mr. Floyd was sitting in his vehicle. The police officer goes o over to the vehicle, uh, gets Mr. Floyd out of the car, handcuffs him, walks him over um, to, to, to try to put Mr. Floyd into his police vehicle, was unsuccessful at that, and through a series of events, Mr. Floyd is, is on the ground and the police officer has his neck, um, rather has his knee on George Floyd's neck and essentially what we all saw what the world saw on social media was a man dying from suffocation uh, due to this police officer having uh, his knee on the man's neck and of course uh, you know the you know, it's cause for 
you know, lots of outrage. People are outraged. The police officer was white. George Floyd was black. And, you know, the, the, whole, the whole incident has brought up a lot of, um, a lot of hurt uh, among people of different races, not only African Americans, but people of all races. And so Dima's story, Alligator, touches upon um, an incident involving a police officer during a different time. And we could also say a, a ra rather similar situation where there was uh, an officer shooting of this, uh, in this case it was a man and a woman who are of a different race. And so, and I say the word race very loosely because um, in the United States, race has actually uh, evolved over time and, and Dima can speak a lot better about this. So, I know I've gone on for, for quite a long time, but this is a, a very complex topic. So Dima, at this time, I would like for you um, to uh, introduce yourself uh, to the audience and to, in your own words, kind of explain, you know, what's going on in this, in this title story, Alligator. Thanks, Donna. Um, so, yeah, I'm Dima Alzia, um, and my collection is titled Alligator and Other Stories out in the U.S. Uh, from $2 Radio. Um, I am currently living in Manchester, which is in the north of England, and I've been here for about four years, and I'm originally, as you mentioned, Donna, from Damascus, Syria, moved to the States when I was seven years old with my family, um, grew up mostly in San Jose, but really lived all over California, um, spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. I worked at different times in uh, the film business in LA. I worked at the Los Angeles Times. Um, I spent some time in Colombia and Ecuador before I moved here. So um, that's kind of my general background. Um, and to jump into this title story, Alligator, um, it's a uh, it's not really a conventional story and that it's not really um, written in a linear manner. It's written in fragments, maybe the best way is to explain it. And it brings together both um, imagined kind of first person uh, narrative fragments by different characters in the story, but it also brings in uh, historical documents, so newspaper clippings, um, census records, uh, interviews, 
um, so some of which are invented and some of which are actually from the archive. So you have a you have a bit of both. There's also social media posts, uh, transcripts, a, a short play. So th the format is uh, quite experimental, I would say. Um, and the story is, uh, you mentioned, Donna, is about the lynching, uh, the true life lynching of a Syrian-American couple in 1929 in Florida. And I had read about the story while I was uh, doing research, academic research, actually. And uh, there was just, you know, when it comes to... Um, research like that as is expected there's a lot of holes in 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 the story and that really interested me so what my story alligator is is really kind of an imagined history of what happened to this couple why they were um why they were murdered by police officers slash a lynch mob um what role you know their immediate community slash their the larger american society played in their murder what role race played in their deaths um what happened to their children and their children's children and it was really about um the story is really an exploration of the making of race so as you said you know race is a loose construct absolutely true um and that's you know both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., but the U.S. has a really interesting, I think, um, history in that we can kind of easily trace how uh, certain segments of our society uh, manage to become racialized as white. Um, and that's really what this story kind of explores. It looks at how the progeny of this couple, how they might have gone on to become um, white subjects. So um, I could kind of go on and on, but I'm sure we'll talk more in detail, but that's the gist of the story. Mm -hmm. So you've been around the world and you've seen race play out in different ways. How, what is American racism? How is American racism different from what you've seen elsewhere? Um, I don't think that these, you know, that they're really disconnected. And I think if anything, living in in the UK especially um, helps kind of connect um, the different kind of systems and hierarchies of, of race. And that I think people outside the US, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have seen the demonstrations in, in support of Black Lives Matter in, you know, the UK and France, um, all over the world really right now. And I think there's sometimes um, a disconnect that happens, definitely happens here in the UK, where people point to the US um, and, you know, see it as a, as a place where, the place where racism um exists and a kind of uh the inability or i don't know if i would call it inability but there's there there is a disconnect um that oftentimes keeps people from 
realizing that that same racism is at play, you know, in their own kind of backyard, so to speak. And um, so I think, you know, traveling and living here, it helps, it's helped me kind of connect that European history of colonialism and um, the slave trade and ideas of white supremacy and really ideas of race that originated um, here in Europe and how, you know, they, they connect to the present day situation in the U.S. So I think it's not a, a matter of, um, you know, one place being worse than another. Um, racism exists really everywhere. And a lo- these ideas and these systems are all interconnected. Um, so, yeah, and I think probably moving around and especially living here right now is, is really kind of has helped me to realize that. Mm-hmm. And when you were growing up here in the United States, um, I, I don't want to give away your age or anything. Uh, so when you were growing up here, were you, did you feel uh, that you were different because of your heritage at that time? Or did you feel um, more that that you were kind of accepted and sort of blended in with with the crowd I guess um well it kind of both I mean this was the 90s and I grew up in San Jose which is a pretty I would say culturally diverse place um which painted my understanding of the U.S. um you know, because it was the first place I lived. I moved there as a child. I didn't speak any English. So there was, you know, I definitely felt um, like an outsider for for a while, especially until I could speak the language. Um, And, but but aside from that, I would say, you know, so many of my friends uh, spoke English as a second language. They, you know, a lot of them maybe had been born in the States with their parents were um, first-generation immigrants, and so it wasn't strange, really, to know that, you know, someone's mom didn't speak English or someone's dad spoke English with a non-American accent, or, you know, it was it was quite common, and, um, and I think that that was, in retrospect, um, really nice, you know, um, and that I didn't necessarily feel, yeah, I guess too different from other other kids in that way. Um, there were definitely you know times growing up where um, I was made to feel different. So you know, um, like sitting in classrooms and being asked to explain the Middle East um, in a history class, or you know, and, that, and that's something that comes up in one of the stories actually for one of the characters. But um, so you know, there were definitely times where I was reminded of that kind of difference, but. I would say that it was really only when I left San Jose and um, went to college and lived in, you know, lived in Los Angeles and kind of really entered adulthood that I came to kind of better understand what that difference meant. And of course, you know, 9-11 didn't, it didn't create I guess, you know, the, the xenophobia or the prejudice that, you know, I've experienced as have many Arab Americans. But I would say 
that it heightened it or it brought it to light or it, it forced me to kind of reckon with it in a in a new way and probably that's also because that's when i was really coming of age and um so i think um yeah i would say it's definitely something that i was made to feel uh in young adulthood more so than in childhood mm-hmm. and you know i i think it's uh really interesting how i mean we all know this but it's it's rarely acknowledged how 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 much race matters in the united states it's you know we we are i mean there's sometimes there's this uh, word that floats around called post racial i'm not mm-hmm. really sure what that means but i think it's supposed to be something about being able to look at people and not see their race as a, a defining characteristic of them Mm -hmm. but there's you know really a lot um a a lot of uh of things that happen in the united states within our history that that really kind of are influenced by different prejudices related to race immigration you mentioned um you know the the 9-11 uh attack all of that it's um it's really a really amazing really a- and then and then people say that race isn't that important but it really is it's crucial to to how our how the american consciousness has developed mm-hmm. um i would say i mean it's kind of a you know when it comes to uh this idea of post-race and as you say you know it's it's kind of had its heyday i would say maybe in uh, the the 90s especially that kind of idea and um and i think it's it's a luxury you know to say that you know someone doesn't see race and it's usually people who are um racialized as white who kind of you know get get to have that luxury and i think um And I think, you know, it's race is, of course, a construct and it's not real in that it's there's no kind of biological basis for it. But it's um, real to the people who live with those racialized identities, you know, to black and indigenous and other people of color. Um, Race is very much a real thing because it's determining, you know, what schools we go to and what neighborhoods we live in and um the chances that you'll be you know um taken into custody if you're arrested the chances of you being convicted if you go to court so it it has real life um has real life implications so it's it's very real in that way um and i think there's also this interesting kind of um i think there's you know and we're kind of speaking about this now as, you know, uh, a story that's timely, but there's always kind of this, I find it problematic, this kind of discourse of timeliness that surrounds, you know, um, discussion of of race and racism in the U.S. And that really it's, you know, it's ever present for, um, for Black Americans and other people of color in the U.S. Race is just a, a matter of 
life and it's something that they have to grapple with every day and it's really only um you know from time to time i think that white americans kind of you know tune in or, or realize hey this is this is a problem or um this is something we have to pay attention to and you know what's happening now that that's good because it's forcing everyone to kind of pay attention but that awareness is ever present you know i think for for a lot of americans and that kind of gets forgotten when we talk about you know things as timely sometimes um yeah not sure where, what else i was going to say about that. yeah that's fine so um Speaking of time, what so this particular uh, story is actually um, the story of of alligator. Mm-hmm. It crosses lots of different time periods. Uh, so you you know you were talking about how it's made up of uh, uh, different types of um, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, I think one reviewer called it an epistolary Mm -hmm. story, meaning that it was comprised of different letters or what have you. But Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's, it's more than just letters. It's, it's a lot of different, a lot of different media that is uh, put together. Because I think there's even like a television show script uh, in one of these. So let's, let let me ask you first. Um, there's there's a lot here, but the, the the story itself. How did you come to discover this story um, about this uh, uh, this this uh, this crime that was uh, uh, committed? I guess what you would call it. How did you come to discover? So this. So there was this um, this couple. They were store owners, and they were, you know, they had the. Uh, I guess there were people complaining about how they were leaving produce and trash out in the out in the front of their store. Mm-hmm. But the store owners were claiming that there was no trash outside the store, and there was only produce. Um, but apparently, you know, that wasn't good enough. So through various series of events, the um, uh, the there was some kind of altercation between the sheriff and the store owners. The woman wound up dying, being murdered. She had five bullets. Um, she died by five bullets, and the and the man. Um, was taken into custody, if I remember that correctly. Yeah. So how did you come to find out about this story, and what was it about the story that inspired you to write about it? So there's this um, really brilliant book called Between Arab and White, written by um, Sarah Galtieri, who's a professor at uh, the University of Southern California. And... um, I was doing research for a PhD dissertation that I was writing, and I came across her research um, into what she researches is really how um, Arabs are racialized in the U.S. And 
uh, how that's been different at different times and um, how Arabs, you know, Arab Americans in the U.S. are technically racialized as white. Um, and it's what we have to tick on census forms. But of course, how Arab Americans are viewed socially and politically in the U.S. is not as white subjects. Um, so that's kind of where my research lay, and I was really interested in that racialization. But she writes about this um, this lynching that happened and, and really questions kind of what it reveals about um, Arab American race. But I was really more interested in um, in kind of what, you know what you can't find in the archives when it comes to to that case so i was interested i found myself really questioning what might have happened um that day for you know this uh, couple to have lost their lives um there were some ideas you know that um that different kind of uh, newspaper accounts point to so for example the Syrian uh, American newspapers at that time kind of launched their own investigation into the murder and lynching. And they said that, you know, the police department had a vendetta probably against this couple um, because of a, uh, a a car crash that had occurred sometime before their death in which their son had been driving um, the car and was involved um, inadvertently in a police chase and the family car was wrecked and the police said that they would pay for the repairs, but then they didn't. So there were kind of all these hypotheses of, of what had led the police and, you know, this couple to get into an argument that then led to the police and, and a lynch mob. Um, killing this couple. So I was interested kind of in, in the, these different ideas of what had happened to these people, but I was also really interested in what happened possibly to their children and their children's children. And because I'd been researching so much um, uh, about Arab American race and how some Arab Americans over time managed to become white while others did not, and I was interested in um, in that process and in the process of kind of racial becoming overall, um, I started kind of just writing these first person accounts of, you know, the, the, these characters that I imagined to be the, this couple's children and their children's children. But then the more that I did that, the more that I kind of, I think pretty quickly realized that you can't really write a lynching story in the U.S. without talking about the thousands of um, African Americans, mostly men, who were lynched in the U.S. So that kind of then launched my investigation into the lynchings that were happening um, in Lake City, Florida, where my story is set. And, you know, I discovered that at the time of, you know, this, this, these murders, that it had the, that Lake City, Florida had the highest number of multiple lynchings. So the lynchings of more than one person at one time um, in the whole state. And that was really interesting. And um, so then I began to incorporate um, some of those, I guess, you know, so, some of that material. So material pertaining to the lynchings and also um, the black men who were reportedly in the jail cell 
um, when the lynch mob comes to take the Syrian American man and murder him. They, you know, they, it was reported in the press at that time that there were two black men who were in the who were in the jail, but that they were too inebriated to give valid accounts of what happened, which of course, you know, most likely was not the case. The case was that they were silenced or, you know, too afraid to speak out or nobody asked them. Um, so I kind of, I wanted to include their, their testimonies. Um, and then the, the more that I dug into that, the more that, um, Lake City became a kind of character in the story itself. And as I researched the city itself, um, I came to learn that it was um, Seminole Indian territory at one time. And I was really interested then in in that. And it, there seemed to be no way to tell a story of racial violence in the U.S. without really going back in time and kind of connecting these points about how the racial violence against indigenous Americans connected to the violence against black Americans then manifested in violence against the Syrian American couple. To me, they were the same story. And so these different kind of fragments or vignettes or, you know, whatever we want to call them really bring together these kind of three different times in history um, where white supremacy and ideas of race and, and racial violence in the U.S. have, have um, really um, impacted um, on individuals and communities. So to me, they were all one in the same story. And, um, and so what you end up with is a kind of collage that really is, I would say, an interrogation of ideas of race in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And, and I would like to say that, that that was it was very very beautifully assembled. I, Thank you. Yes, I, I I really liked the way that 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 was, you know, from the the different time periods and such. And um, so now, let's let's talk about about that for just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you? decide to put the stories together in that way. So, you know, some authors may have decided to take a more linear approach. In Mm -hmm. fact, maybe starting the story with the, you know, the big height at at the height of the action, which would be, you know, the, the murder of the, of the, uh, the female store owner. Right. Mm -hmm. And then maybe, going back in time to the to the Native American and then moving forward to the um, to the uh, lynching right that's that's probably how I would have put the story together yeah but why did you uh, decide to do it in the manner that you have um, I think you know it was really the content that led me to the form and by that I mean in the process of kind of writing what I said I began you know with which were the first person kind of accounts of this couple's children and their children's children. Um, At first I thought maybe I am kind of writing a linear story, but when I started incorporating um, the voices of, I guess even at that point, I started questioning um, my authority 
to do this? Like, how am I imagining these very real people's kind of histories and futures? And then as I began incorporating um, Black voices and Indigenous voices, and I really then questioned my ability to tell this history because um, not really my right to or anything like that, but my ability to. And so by that, I mean, I, I was suspicious of would pretend that I was an authority on what happened or my ability to tell the story of what happened to all of these people. And, and I was really more interested in getting the reader to question all of the different possibilities um, of what's happened and also to feel like they were investigating with me alongside me as I came across all of these documents, how all of these different um, fragments connected and what they said about race in the States and what they said about the murder of this couple. So I, I really wanted to push against um the the like giving a final account or like the final word on what's happened to all of these people i wanted it to be more of an open-ended kind of um investigation and i also very much wanted to in within the story to be quite self-reflexive and by that i mean i wanted to question my own position as the author of you know these stories so by that i mean in some of the fragments um especially when there are indigenous voices or black voices the characters themselves question me as the writer of their story and as the um and as an authority in you know, as an authority figure in the telling of this tale, you know, they ask me kind of directly, is this how you imagine us? Are they, and by extension, they're asking the reader, you know, so I kind of really wanted to refuse that possibility of providing, you know, this final account. And instead I wanted it to be an open-ended um, kind of process for the reader. And so to me, it felt like putting together these fragments would allow for that. It would really kind of refuse then this easy beginning to end linear narrative where, okay, here's a beginning and this is how it developed. And okay, here is the end. And now I understand everything about, you know, A, B, and C that's led me to Z. I wanted it to be very much, um, like I said, an interrogation and, and the form allowed me to do that. And so originally, I kind of had all these fragments and I was, wasn't really writing them in any kind of order. And then as they were accruing, that's when I started assembling them and I assembled them actually um, physically by that. I mean, I printed them all out, cut them all out and my entire living, <laughs> living room floor was covered in them. And I would just move them around, you know, come back to them from time to time and, and see how they were working. And what I was interested in is having um, different fragments push against each other. So, for example, um, one of the fragments is a letter that one of the townspeople in Lake City writes to the governor kind of, you know, um, complaining about the unjust murder of this Syrian-American couple and, and saying, hey, they were good citizens and they didn't deserve what happened to them and the police is corrupt and they're really kind of standing up for this couple, you know, and um, and my thought was, you know, that a reader would see that as quite commendable because here's, you know, probably a white citizen standing up for 
the Syrian couple, and that's pretty great. But then what I decided to follow that fragment with was were um, different newspaper clippings about the many lynchings that were happening of uh, Black Americans in Lake City around and leading up to this time. And my hope would then be for the reader to then reassess what they had just read, you know, in that did the writer of that letter ever take issue with the murder of these, you know, black subjects? Probably not, you know. So, and that's really how I came to assemble the whole story is I really wanted um, each fragment to be in dialogue with the fragment that came before and came right after. Mm-hmm. And the process, you know, it sounds like it really illustrates the kind of back and forth tension that the you know America has itself where it's like these people count these people don't and then mm-hmm. you turn around and then the next day oh no it's these people who don't count and those people who do yeah just just like that yeah I think that's a really good point because I think that fragmentation um, that's in the story very much mirrors um, or parallels like the attempts at assimilation that different um, groups have had in in the U.S. you know and how it's never really a complete process Um, yeah so there are also fragments that are in the modern day so there were some I think that were in the 90s, maybe some around the 2000s. And they don't seem to have a direct relationship to the main story of the, Uh you know, the the two, of the store owners. What, why did you include those more modern contemporary stories? Those are mostly emails. Mm -hmm. So there is, um, there is one, I, I guess you could call it a storyline of one character um, who is set in the present day or kind of close to the present day. And he is actually what I would imagine to be the grandchild of this of this couple. Um, and it's not explicitly said anywhere. It's his last name is... Um, is kind of the clue that you know a a, a reader could kind of um, find and and realize oh you know this is probably the grandchild or the great grandchild of of this couple um, and so it, it's quite subtle that connection but that would be his role as he's this character who has. Um, who I would say has kind of completed that what I don't you know that kind of act of becoming um, a white American and to him how that manifests is he's quite um, wary of people who are different from him and he's um, really quick to call um people of color thugs um and he's uh quite um disparaging of you know um let's say you know the peaceful protests of colin kaepernick and 
um, other NFL players who kneeled during the anthem. And that's kind of what his posts and emails and his social media posts and emails um, speak to. And, and so that's because I was investigating um, the act of kind of racial becoming how, you know, an Arab American over time could become a white American, which, you know, definitely happened for many Arab Americans and it definitely happened for many other groups in the U.S. And the most cited example is always the Irish. But um, so and that's why he's included in there, because I think there I think where it's very easy to point, let's say, um, to white Americans and say, you, you know, you're the problem. You're the reason for for. Um, racism in America, but really racism, you know, as we know, is is a system, and it's um, it's more than an individual being racist or not racist. It's you know we're all born into these racist systems, and we try to grapple with them. Um, so I was more interested in being critical of Arab Americans' role in upholding these same racist hierarchies that at one point might have oppressed them um, and do still, you know, oppress them, um, but how they might uphold them by embracing ideas of whiteness um, and how they might use ideas of whiteness um, to access um, white privilege and, um, and how they might then beca- become um, oppressors themselves. So, that was uh, that's kind of the the connect there between the story of of this couple and and this character that's set in the near present day. Hmm. Interesting. I had I hadn't gotten that by the way, but um... yeah, it's very. I mean, it's really <laughs> subtle. It's really subtle. So um, yeah, it's his last name is mentioned by one of the 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 characters, and then but it's still. Yeah, it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I like it when authors kind of, you know, uh, put some uh, put some finesse or, wh- or what have you, little <laughs> tricks or Easter eggs or what, what have you in a yeah. story. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> so when people come to your uh, story after... Let's even, you know, even after listening to this uh, interview, what do you want them, what feelings, ideas, um, what do you want them to walk away with? Um, I think a few things, hopefully. Um, I want them to hopefully question, um, you know, their ideas of, of American whiteness, um, this, to kind of engage with it as something that people at different times um, and places kind of uh, took on, that it's not, you know, a fact set in stone that raises something that's quite malleable um, and has to be constantly, you know, made and remade and maintained. And to also kind of challenge this idea of whiteness as being a marker of true American belonging um, because the the subjects in the story, whether they're black or indigenous or Syrian, they are all American. And um, 
and this is an American story. And I think so many times um, what we think of as American stories kind of don't include, you know, th- those voices. So I think um, those two ideas, I think, you know, and and kind of larger than that maybe, you know, or connected to that is it to kind of see these incidents of racial violence is just not isolated. They are, um, they are American history. They are, you know, what the country was founded on and what um, continues to manifest in the U.S. And there's never been a time in the U.S. where racial violence um, was not ongoing and occurring. And um, so I think those would be the things that I would hope a reader would walk away with. Do you think there will ever be a time when we're not fighting about race? Can we Oof, be yeah. post-racial? Ah, not in, I mean, I'd like to say, the thing is, I, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I don't want to be super cynical, but I say no, but <laughs> um, I would say the conversations are getting um, hopefully more sophisticated like how we talk about race is uh is probing a little more deeply so you know we're talking about systemic racism instead of individual racism which um that on its own is um a huge step in the right direction i think um we are you know hopefully moving in in the right direction i don't know if I don't know if what we want anyway is to be post-racial. I think, you know, race exists and those differences exist. But if we come can come to a place where those differences aren't affecting who lives and dies and or what the quality of life is for people who are racialized differently, I think that's that would be, um, in my opinion, the the goal. Very well said. All right. Well, Dima, I want to thank you so much um, for talking with us today. Um, this has been a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful story, and it's been a wonderful conversation. And I, and I feel uh, our readers and our, our listeners, when they read your story, <laughs> will feel um, the very same way. Uh, thank you, Donna. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and thank you for the great questions. Well, that's it for another great episode of Short Story Discussions, brought to you by Short Story Book Club. Would you like to become a member of the club? Visit us online at shortstorybookclub.com to subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Your story matters, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for being part of today's episode. See you next time.